Section 19 of Vice Versa by F. Anstey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vice Versa by F. Anstey. Chapter 17. A Perfidious Ally. But homeward, home, what home? Had he a home? His home. He'd walked. Then down the long street, having slowly stolen, his heart foreshadowing all calamity, his eyes upon the stones, he reached his home. Paul had been careful, whilst in the hearing of his friends, to give the cabman a fictitious address. But as soon as he reached the Euston Road, he stopped the man and ordered him to put him down at the church near the south end of Westbourne Terrace, for he dared not drive up openly to his own door. At last he found himself standing safely on the pavement, looking down the long line of yellow lamps of his own terrace, only a few hundred yards from home. But though his purpose was now within easy reach, his spirits were far from high. His anxiety had returned with tenfold power. He felt no eagerness or exultation. On the contrary, the task he had set himself had never before seemed so hopeless, so insurmountable. He stood for some time by the railing of the church, which was lighted up for evening service, listening blankly to the solemn drone of the organ within, unable to summon up resolution to move from the spot and present himself to his unsuspecting family. It was a cold night with a howling wind and high in the blue-black sky, fleecy clouds were coursing swiftly along. He obliged himself to set out at last, and walked down the flags toward his house, shivering as much from nervousness as from cold. There was a dance somewhere in the terrace that evening, a large one. As far as he could see, there were close ranks of carriages with blazing lamps, and he even fancied he could hear the shouts of the link boys, and the whistles summoning cabs. As he came nearer, he had a hideous suspicion, which soon became a certainty, that the entertainment was at his own house, or still, it was of a kind and on a scale calculated to shock and horrify any prudent householder and father of a family. The balcony above the portico was positively hung with gaudy Chinese lanterns and there were even some strange sticks and shapes up in one corner that looked suspiciously like fireworks. Fireworks in Westbourne Terrace? What would the neighbors think or do? Between the wall which separates the main road from the terrace and the street front, there were no less than four piano organs playing, it is to be feared, by express invitation, and there was the usual crowd of idlers and loungers standing about by the awning stretched over the portico, listening to the music and loud laughter which came from the brilliantly lighted upper rooms. Paul remembered then too late that Barbara, in that memorable letter of hers, had mentioned a grandchildren's party as being in contemplation. Dick had held his tongue about it that morning, and he himself had not thought it was to be so soon. For an instant, he felt almost inclined to turn away and give the whole thing up. 
in sick despair, even to return to Market Roadwell and brave the doctor's anger, for how could he hope to explain matters to his family and servants, or get the Garuda stone safely into his hands again before all these guests in the whirl and tumult of an evening party? And yet he dared not, after all, go back to Critton House. That was too terrible an alternative, and he obviously could not roam the world to any extent, a runaway schoolboy to all appearance, and with less than a sovereign in his pocket. After a short struggle, he felt he must make his way in, watch and wait, and leave the rest to chance. It was his evil fate, after all, that had led him on to make his escape on this night of all others, and had allowed him to come through so much, only to be met with these unforeseen complications just when he might have imagined the worst was over. He forced his way through the staring crowd, and went down the steps into the area, for he naturally shrank from braving the front door, with its crowd of footmen and hired waiters. He found the door in the basement open, which was fortunate, and slipped quietly through the pantry, intending to reach the hall by the kitchen stairs. But here another check met him. The glass door, which led to the stairs, happened to be shut, and he heard voices in the kitchen, which convinced him that if he wished to escape notice, he must wait quietly in the darkness until the door was open for him, whenever that might be. The door from the pantry to the kitchen was partly open, however, and Mr. Bultitude could not avoid hearing everything that passed there, although every fresh word added to his uneasiness until at last he would have given worlds to escape from his involuntary position of eavesdropper. There were only two persons just then in the kitchen, his cook, who, still in her working dress, was refreshing herself after her labors over the supper with a journal of some sort, and the housemaid, who in neat gala costume was engaged in fastening a pin more securely in her white cap. They haven't given me an answer yet, Eliza, said the cook, looking up from her paper. Lor, cook, said Eliza, you couldn't hardly expect it, seeing you only wrote on Friday. No more I did, Eliza. You see, it only began to come into my mind sudden, like this last week. I'm sure I no more dreamt. But they've answered a lady who's been in much the same situation as me, apparently. You just hark to this a minute and she proceeded to read from the paper. Lady Bird, you ask us, one, what are the signs by which you may recognize the first dawnings of your lover's affection? On so delicate a matter, we are naturally averse from advising you. Your own heart must be your best guide, but perhaps we may mention a few of the most unusual and infallible symptoms. What sort of a thing is a symptom, Eliza? A symptom, Cook? explained Eliza, is something wrong with the inside. Her at my last place in Cadogan Square had them uncommon bad. She was what they call aesthetical. Poor young thing. Them infallible ones are always the worst. It doesn't seem to make sense, though, Eliza, objected Cook doubtfully. Hear how it goes. Infallible symptoms. If you have truly inspired him with a genuine and lasting passion, don't he write beautiful? Passion. 
he will continually haunt those places in which you are most likely to be found. I couldn't tell you the times Master's been down in my kitchen this last week. He will appear awkward and constrained in your presence. Anything more awkward than Master, I never set eyes on. He's knocked down one of the best porcelain vegetables this very afternoon. He will beg for any little favor, some trifle it may be, made by your own hand. Master's always a-asking if I've got any of those donuts to give away. And, if granted, he will treasure them in secret with pride and rapture. I don't think Master kept any of those donuts, though, Eliza. I saw him swallow five. But you couldn't treasure a donut, not to mention. I'll make him a pincushion when I've time, and see what he does with it. If you detect all these indications of liking in the person you suspect of paying his addresses to you, you may safely reckon upon bringing him to your feet in a very short space of time. Two, yes, Fuller's earth will make them exquisitely white. There, Eliza, said Cook, with some pride, when she had finished. If it had been meant for me, it couldn't have been clearer. Ain't it written nice? And only to think of my bringing master to my feet. It seems almost too much for a cook to expect. I wouldn't say so, Cook, I wouldn't. Have some proper pride. Don't let him think he's only to ask and have. Why, in the London Journal last week, there was a duke as married a governess, and I should hope as a cook ranked above a governess. Nor master ain't a duke. He's only in the city. But are you sure he's not only a trifling with your affections, Cook? He's been very affable and pleasant with all of us lately. It ain't for me to speak too positive, Eliza, said Cook, almost bashfully, nor to lay bare the feelings of a bosom, beyond what's right and proper. You're young yet, Eliza, and don't understand these things, leastways. It's to be hoped not. Eliza, having apparently tossed her head. But do you remember that afternoon last week, as Master stayed at home, a-playing games with the children? I was a-going upstairs to fetch my thimble, and there, on the bedroom landing, was Master all alone, with one of Master Dick's toy guns in his hand, and an old slouch hat on his head. "'Have you got a pass, Cook?' he says, and my heart came right up into my mouth. He looked that severe and lofty at me. I thought he was put out about something. I said I didn't know as it was required, but I could get one, I says, not knowing what he was alluding to all the same. But he says, quite soft and tender-like, here Paul shivered with shame. No, you needn't do that, Cook. There ain't any occasion for it. Only, he says, if you haven't got no pass, you'll have to give me a kiss, you know, Cook. I thought I should have sunk through the stairs. I was that overcome. I saw through his rogue with half an eye. Why, he said the same to me, said Eliza. Only I had a pass, as luck had it, which Miss Barbara give me. I'd have boxed his ears if he had tried it, too, master or no master. You talk light, Eliza, said the cook sentimentally, but you weren't there to see. It wasn't only the words, it was the way he said it, and the hug he gave me at the time. It was as good as a proposal, and I tell you, whatever you may say, and mark my words, I have hopes. Then if I was you, cook, said Eliza, I'd try if I could get him to speak out plain in writing. Then, whatever came of it, 
there'd be as good as five hundred pounds in your pockets. Love letters, cried the cook. Why, Lord, love you, Eliza. Why, William, how you made me jump. I thought you was up seeing to the supper table. The pastry cook's man is looking after all that, Jane, said Bolar's voice. I've been up outside the drawing room all this time, looking at the games going on in there. It's as good as a play to see the way his master is an unbending of himself. And such an out-and-out -out stiff one he used to be, too. But it ain't what I like to see in a respectable house. I'm glad I give warning. It doesn't do for a man in my position to compromise his character by such goings-on. I never seen anything like it in any families I've lived with before. Just come up and see for yourself. You needn't mind about cleaning of yourself. They won't see you. So the cook allowed herself to be persuaded by Bolar, and the two went up the hall, and to Mr. Bultitude's intense relief, forgot to close the glazed door, which cut him off from the staircase. As he followed them upstairs at a cautious interval, and thought over what he had just so unwillingly overheard, he felt as one who had just been subjected to a moral shower-bath. That dreadful woman, he groaned, who would have dreamed that she would get such horrible ideas in her head. I shall never be able to look either of those two women in the face again. They will both have to go. And she made such excellent soup, too. I do hope that miserable Dick has not been fool enough to write to her. But no, that's too absurd. But more than ever he began to wish that he had stayed in the playground. When he reached the hall, he stood there for some moments in anxious deliberation over his best course of proceeding. His main idea was to lie in wait somewhere for Dick, and try the result of an appeal to his better feelings, to acknowledge his outcast parent, and abdicate gracefully. If that failed, and there was every reason to expect that it would fail, he must threaten to denounce him before the whole party. It would cause a considerable scandal, no doubt, and be extremely repugnant to his own feelings. But still he must do it, or frighten Dick by threatening to do it, and at all hazards he must contrive during the interview to snatch or purloin the magic stone. Without that he was practically helpless. He looked round him. The study was piled up with small boys' hats and coats, and in one corner was a kind of refined bar, where till lately a trim housemaid had been dispensing coffee and weak lemonade. She might return at any moment. He would not be safe there. Nor would the dining-room be more secluded, for in there was an elaborate supper being laid out by the waiters, which, as far as he could see through the crack in the door, consisted chiefly of lobsters, trifle, and pink champagne. He felt a grim joy at the sight, more than he would suffer for this night's festivities. As he stole about with a dismal sense of the unfitness of his sneaking about his own house in this guilty fashion, he became gradually aware of the scent of a fine cigar, one of his own special cabanas. He wondered who had the impudence to trespass on a cigar chest. It could hardly be one of the children. He traced the scent to a billiard room, which he had built out at the side of the house, which was a corner one and going down to the door, opened it sharply and walked in. Comfortably embedded in the depths 
of a long, well-padded lounging chair with a spirit case and two or three bottles of soda water at his elbow sat a man who was lazily glancing through the field, with his feet resting on the mantelpiece, one on each side of the blazing fire. He was a man of about the middle size, with a face rather bronzed and reddened by climate, a nose slightly aquiline and higher in color, quick black eyes with an uneasy glance in them, bushy black whiskers, more like the antiquated Dundreary type than modern fashion permits, and a wide, flexible mouth. Paul knew him at once, though he had not seen him for some years. It was Paradine, his disreputable brother-in-law, the Uncle Marmaduke, who, by importing the mysterious Garuda Stone, had brought about all these woes upon him. He noticed at once that his appearance was unusually prosperous, and that the braided smoking coat he wore over his evening clothes was new and handsome. No wonder, he thought bitterly, the fellow has been living on me for a week. He stood by the cue-rack, looking at him for some time, and then he said with a cold, ironic dignity that, if he had known it, came oddly from his boyish lips. I hope you are making yourself quite comfortable. Marmaduke put down his cigar and stared. Uncommonly attentive and polite of you to inquire, he said at last, with a dubious smile, which showed a row of very white teeth, whoever you are, if it will relieve your mind at all to know, young man, I am happy to say I am tolerably comfortable. Thanks. I concluded as much, said Paul, nearly choked with rage. You've been very nicely brought up, said Uncle Marmaduke. I can see that at a glance. So you've come in here, like me, huh? Because the children bore you, and you want a quiet gossip over the world in general. Sit down, then, take a cigar. If you don't think it will make you very unwell, I shouldn't recommend it myself, you know, before supper, but you're a man of the world and know what's good for you. Come along, enjoy yourself, till you find yourself getting queer. Then drop it. Mr. Bultitude had always detested the man. There was an underbred swagger and familiarity in his manner that made him indescribably offensive. Just now he seemed doubly detestable, and yet Paul, by a strong effort, succeeded in controlling his temper. He could not afford to make enemies just then, and objectionable as the man was, his astuteness made him a valuable ally. He determined, without considering the risk of making such a confidant, to tell him all and ask his advice and help. Do you know me, Paradine? I don't think I have the privilege. You're one of Miss Barbara's numerous young friends, I suppose. And yet, now I look at you, you don't seem to be exactly got up for an evening party. There's something in your voice, too, I ought to know. You ought, said Paul, with a gulp. My name is Paul Bultitude. To be sure, cried Marmaduke. By Jove, then you're my young nephew, don't you know? I'm your lost long uncle, my boy. I am indeed. I'll excuse you from coming to my arms, however. I never was good at family embraces. But I say, you little rascal, you've never been asked to these festivities. You ought to be miles away, fast asleep in your bed at school. What in the name of wonders are you doing here? I've left school, said Paul. So I perceive. 
Sulky because they left you out of all this, huh? Thought you'd turn up in the middle of the banquet like the specter bridegroom. The worms they crawled in and the worms they crawled out, huh? Well, I like your pluck, but I'm afraid you'll find they've rather an unpleasant way of laying your kind of apparitions. Never mind about that, said Paul hurriedly. I have something I must tell you. I've no time to lose. I'm a desperate man. You are, Paradine assented with a loud laugh. Oh, you are indeed a desperate man. Capital, a stern chase, huh? The schoolmaster close behind with the birch. It's quite exciting, you know. But seriously, I'm very much afraid you'll catch it. If, began Mr. Bultitude, in great embarrassment, if I was to tell you that I was not myself at all, but somebody else, and, in fact, an entirely different person from what I seem to you to be, I suppose you would laugh. I beg your pardon, said his brother-in-law politely. I don't think I quite catch the idea. When I assure you now, solemnly, as I stand here before you, that I am not the miserable boy whose form I am condemned to wear, you'll say it is incredible. Not at all, by no means. I quite believe you. Only, really it's a mere detail, but I should rather like to know, if you're not that particular boy, what other boy you may happen to be. You'll forgive my curiosity. I am not a boy at all. I am your own unhappy brother-in-law, Paul. You don't believe me, I see. Oh, pardon me. It's perfectly clear. You're not your own son, but your own father. It's a little confusing at first, but no doubt common enough. I'm glad you mentioned it, though. Go on, said Paul bitterly. Make light of it. You fancy you are being very clever, but you will find out the truth in time. Not without external assistance, I'm afraid, said Paradine calmly. A more awful little liar for your age I never saw. I'm tired of this, said Paul. Only listen to reason and common sense. Only give me a chance. I tell you, protested Paul earnestly, it's the sober, awful truth. I'm not a boy. It's years since I was a boy. I'm a middle-aged man thrust into this, this humiliating form. Don't say that, murmured the other. It's an excellent fit, very becoming, I assure you. Do you want to drive me mad with your clumsy jeers, cried Paul? Look at me. Do I speak... Do I behave like an ordinary schoolboy? I really hope not, for the sake of the rising generation, said Uncle Marmaduke, chuckling at his own powers of repartee. You are very jaunty today. You look as if you were well off, said Paul slowly. I remember a time when a certain bill was presented to me, drawn by you, and appearing to be accepted, long before I ever saw it, by me. I consented to meet it for my poor Maria's sake, and because to disown my signature would have ruined you for life. Do you remember how you went down on your knees in my private room and swore you would reform and be a credit to your family yet? You weren't quite so well off, or so jaunty then, unless I'm very much mistaken. These words had an extraordinary effect upon Uncle Marmaduke. He turned ashy white and his quick eyes shifted restlessly as he half rose from his chair and threw away his unfinished cigar. "'You young hound,' he said, breathing hard and speaking under his breath. 
How did you get a hold of that, that lying story? Your father must have let it out. Why do you bring up bygones like this? You, you're a confounded, disagreeable little prig. Who told you to play an ill-natured trick of this sort on an uncle who may have been wild and reckless in his youth, was in fact, but who never, never misused his relation towards you as, as an uncle? How did I get hold of the story, said Paul, observing the impression he had made? Do you think, if I were really a boy of thirteen, I should know as much about you as I do? Do you want to know more? Ask if you dare. Shall I tell you how it was you left your army coach without going up for examination? Will you have the story of your career in my old friend Parkinson's counting house, or the real reason of your trip to New York, or what it was that made your father add that codicil, cutting you off with a set of engravings of the rake's progress and a guinea to pay for framing them. I can tell you all about it, if you care to hear. No, shrieked Paradine, I won't listen. When you grow up, ask your father to buy you a cheap society journal. You're cut out for the editor of one. It doesn't interest me. Do you believe my story or not? asked Paul. I don't know. Who could believe it? said the other sullenly. How can you possibly account for it? Do you remember giving Maria a little sandalwood box with a small stone in it? said Paul. I have some recollection of giving her something of that kind. A curiosity, wasn't it? I wish I had never seen it. That infernal stone paradigm has done all this to me. Did no one tell you it was supposed to have any magic power? Why, now I think of it, that old black rascal, Bindadun Doss, did try to humbug me with some such story, said it was believed to be a talesman, but the secret was lost. I thought it was just his stingy way of trying to make the rubbish out as something priceless, as it ought to have been, considering all I did for the old ruffian. You told Maria it was a talesman. Bindabun, what's his name, was right. It is a talesman of the deadliest sort. I'll soon convince you, if you will only hear me out. And then, in white-hot wrath and indignation, Mr. Bultitude began to tell the story I have already attempted to sketch here, dwelling bitterly on Dick's heartless selfishness and cruelty, and piteously on his own incredible sufferings, while Uncle Marmaduke, lolling back in his armchair with an attempt, which was soon abandoned, to retain a smile of amused skepticism on his face, heard him out in complete silence and with all due gravity. Indeed, Paul's manner left him no room for further unbelief. His tale, wild and improbable as it was, was too consistent and elaborate for any schoolboy to have invented, and besides, the imposture would have been so entirely purposeless. When his brother-in-law had come to the end of his sad story, Paradine was silent for some time. It was some relief to know that the darkest secrets of his life had not been ferreted out by a phenomenally sharp nephew. But the change in the situation was not without its drawbacks. It remained to be seen how it might affect himself. He already saw his reign in Westbourne Terrace threatened with a speedy determination, unless he played his cards well. Well, he said at last, with a swift, keen glance at Paul, 
who sat anxiously waiting for his next words. Suppose I were to say that I think there may be something in this story of yours. What then? What is it you want me to do for you? Why, said Paul, with all you owe to me, now you know the horrible injustice I have had to bear, you surely don't mean to say that you won't help me to right myself. And if I did help you, what then? Why, I should be able to recover all I have lost, of course, said Mr. Bultitude. He thought his brother-in-law had grown very dull. Ah, but I mean, what's to become of me? You, repeated Paul. He had not thought of that. Well, hmm. From what I know, and what you know that I know about your past life, you can't expect me to encourage you to remain here. No, said Uncle Marmaduke, of course not. Very right and proper. But, said Paul, willing to make all reasonable concessions, anything I can do to advance your prospects, such as paying your passage out to New York, you know, and so on, I should be very ready to do. Thank you, said the other. And even, if necessary, provide you with a small fund to start afresh upon. Honestly, said Paul, you will not find me difficult to deal with. "'It's a dazzling proposition,' remarked Paradine dryly. "'You have such an alluring way of putting things. "'But the fact is, you'll hardly believe it, "'but I'm remarkably well off here. "'I am indeed. "'Your son, you know, though not you, "'except as a mere matter of form, "'really makes, as they say of the marmalade in the advertisements, "'an admirable substitute. "'I doubt, I do assure you, "'whether you yourself would have received me.' with quite the same warmth and hospitality I have met with from him. So do I, said Paul, very much. Just so, for without your admirable business capacity and extraordinary firmness of character, you know, he has, if you'll excuse my saying so, a more open, guileless nature, a more entire and touching faith in his fellow man and brother-in-law than were ever yours. To say that to me, said Paul hotly, is nothing less than sheer impudence. My dear Paul, it does seem deuced odd to be talking to a little shrimp like you as a grown-up brother-in-law. I shall get used to it presently, I dare say. I flatter myself I am a man of the world. We are dealing with one another now, as the lawyers have it, at arm's length. Just put yourself in my place. You're so remarkably good at putting yourself in other people's places, you know. Look at the thing from my point of view. Accidentally dropping in at your offices to negotiate, if I could, a small temporary loan from anyone I chanced to meet on the premises, I find myself, to my surprise, welcomed with effusion into what I then imagined to be your arms. More than that, I was invited here for an indefinite time, all my little eccentricities unmentioned, overlooked. I was deeply touched. It struck me, I confess, at one time, that you must be touched, too, but I made the best use of my opportunities. I made hay while the sun shone. Do you mean to make me lose my temper? interrupted Paul. It will not take much more. I have no objection. I find men, as a rule, easier to deal with when they have once lost their temper, their heads so often go too. But to return, a man with nerve and his fair share of brains, like myself, only wants a capitalist 
he need not be a millionaire, had his back to conquer the world. It's not by any means my first campaign, and I've had my reverses, but I see victory in my grasp, sir, in my grasp at last. Paul groaned. Now you, it's not your fault, I know, a mere defect of constitution, but you, as a speculator, were, if I may venture to put it so, not worth your salt. No boldness, no dash, all caution. But your promising son is a regular whale on speculation, and I may tell you that we stand in together in some little ventures that would very probably make your hair stand on end. You wouldn't have touched them, and yet there's money in every one of them. My money, said Paul savagely, and it won't come out again. You don't know much about these things, you see, said Marmaduke. I tell you, I have my eye on some fine openings for capital. Your pockets always were very fine openings for capital, retorted Paul. Ha ha, deuced sharp that. But to come to the point, you were always a sensible, practical kind of fellow, and you must see that for me to back you up and upset this young rascal who has stepped into your slippers might be morally meritorious enough, but treating it from a purely pecuniary point of view, it's not business. I see, said Mr. Bultitude heavily. Then you side against me? Did I ever say I would side against you? Let us hear first what you propose to do. Paul, upon this, explained that, as he believed the stone still retained its power of granting one wish to any other person who happened to get hold of it, his idea was to get possession of it somehow from Dick, who probably would have it about him somewhere, and then pass it on to someone whom he could trust not to misuse it so basely. A good idea that, Paul, my boy, said Paradine, smiling, but you don't imagine our young friend would be quite such an idiot as not to see your game. Why, he would pitch the stone in the gutter, or stamp it to powder, rather than let you get a hold of it. He's quite capable of it, said Paul. In fact, he's threatened to do worse than that. I doubt if I shall ever be able to manage it myself. But what am I to do? I must try, and I've no time to lose about it, either. I'll tell you this, said Marmaduke. If you let him see you here, it's all up with you. What you want is some friend to manage this for you, someone he won't suspect. Now suppose I were willing to risk it for you. You, cried Paul, with involuntary distrust. Why not, said Marmaduke, with a touch of feelings. Ah, I see. You can't trust me. You've got an idea into your head that I'm a thorough-paced rascal, without a trace of human feelings about me. I dare say I deserve it. I dare say I do. But it's not generous, my boy, for all that. I hope to show you your mistake yet, if you give me the chance. You allow yourself to be prejudiced by the past, that's where you make your mistake. I only put before you, clearly and plainly, what it was I was giving up in helping you. A fellow may have a hard, cynical kind of way of putting things, and yet, take my word for it, Paul, have a heart as tender as a spring chicken underneath. I believe I'm something like that myself. I tell you I'm sorry for you. I don't like to see a family man of your position in such a regular deuce of a hole. I feel bound to give you a lift out of it, and let my prospects take their own chance. I'll leave the gratitude to you. When I'm done, 
Kick me down the doorsteps if you like. I shall go out into the world with the glow of self-approval and rapid motion warming my system. Take my advice. Don't attempt to tackle Master Dick yourself. Leave him to me. If I could only make up my mind to trust you, muttered Paul. The old distrust, cried Marmaduke, you can't forget. You won't believe a poor devil like me can have any gratitude, any disinterestedness left in him. Never mind, I'll go. I'll leave it to you. I'll send Dick in here, and we shall see whether he's such a fool as you think him. No, said Paul, no. I feel you're right. That would never do. It would be for my advantage, I think, said the other. But you had better take me while I'm in the magnanimous mood. The opportunity may never occur again. Come, am I to help you or not? Yes or no? I must accept, said Paul reluctantly. I can't find Bowler now, and it might take hours to make him see what I wanted. I'll trust to your honor. What shall I do? Do? Get away from this. He'll be coming in here very soon to see me. Run away and play with the children, or hide in the china closet. Anything but stay here. I must be here while you're managing him, objected Paul. Nonsense, said Paradine angrily. I tell you it will spoil all, unless... Who's that? It's his step. Too late now, dash it all. Behind that screen, quick. Don't move for your life till I tell you you may come out. Mr. Bultitude had no choice. There was just time to set up an old folding screen which stood in the corner of the room and slip behind it before the door opened. It might not be the highest wisdom to trust everything to his new ally in this manner, but what else could he do except stand by in forced inactivity while the momentous duel was being fought out? Just then, at all events, he saw no other course. End of section 19. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas.